Now, Edward R. Murrow and the voices of Harry Truman, Robert A. Taft, Dwight D. Eisenhower, George C. Marshall, John L. Lewis, Pondit Nehru, Bing Crosby, Red Smith, and more than 50 other people in the news in the fifth performance of Hear It Now, a full hour report on the week's news, presented tonight and every week at this time. Why should they wait for three years for us to build up a great international army? What possible reason is there for their waiting? Your Excellencies, my Lord Mayor, my Lords and Gentlemen, a pray silence the Right Honorable the Earl of Halifax, Knights of the Most Noble Order of the Garter. Oh, my love, my life, my all. Hear it now. The Columbia Broadcasting System and 173 affiliated radio stations present a document for ear based on the week's news and the men and women who made it. All the voices and sounds you will hear are real. They are presented as they were spoken in the heat and confusion of a world in crisis. It is broadcast in the hope that the collection of these scraps of sound into a weekly recorded history may add another dimension to our understanding in the difficult days ahead. Here is the editor of Hear It Now, the distinguished reporter and news analyst, Edward R. Murrow. We Americans, with the best communications, the most radios, and some of the finest newspapers in the world, sometimes like to refer to ourselves as the best informed people in the world. This week, however, Senator Robert Taft recalled some rather startling figures on this subject. I was very much interested in a poll made by Mr. Gallup on the subject of the approval of Secretary Atchison's policies. Uh, the vote was, uh, uh, do you approve Secretary Atchison's policies? 31% uh, no, 20% uh, yes, 15% don't know, 34% never heard of Secretary Atchison. Uh, Senator Taft did not think this was funny. He went on to say that, in his opinion, 50% of the people do not take an interest in politics unless it affects them. But this second week of 1951, what was going on in domestic and international politics was affecting the lives of a good deal more than 50% of the American people. That isn't politics. It's the sound of an airfield and a city burning in South Korea. If Americans were weak on their politics and their Atchison's and other names in the news, they were certainly in a position to learn some new geography that definitely affected every one of us. Actually, it was a refresher course this week in names we had known in both retreat and great victory. Hong Chan and Ham Chang, Se Chan and Ye Chan, Su Wan and Te Jian and Wan Ju. Junction points on the sad route south in Korea. Even the words we thought we knew were redefined. The censors told us that retreat and withdrawal were two different words. To the G.I.s, it made no difference. His job was to fight. Not a simple job against a crafty enemy that could melt into the snow. 
seemingly come out of nowhere and attack and pursue. Lieutenant Colonel Oliver J. Kenny of sunny California reports on this. It's rather difficult for us to, uh, right at the moment, account for uh, their ability to hide. It seems that they, they, of course, wear these white reversible suits, brown and white suits. There was uh, quite a bit of snow on the ground. It could be that they're uh, digging in under the snow if they can find it deep enough or they have a, a white uh, material to put over them. I'm not sure just what happened. But they get in there. They are experts at the use of camouflage from what we've seen. We are holding below Wanju. If the enemy cuts through the American 2nd Division here, he can cut our major communication lines in Central Korea. Our heavy bombers and our carrier planes, our artillery and our bayonets have been holding all week. The most determined stand since the summer in the Naktong line. There were two big untold stories in Korea this week. One was the United Nations Army, where it was, where it's going, what it's going to do. The other story was the refugees. From Punyang to Seoul, they had walked. And now, through the towns and small cities, they were arriving at Busan, our biggest southern port. 250,000 refugees are in Busan today, and they're arriving at the rate of 50,000 a day. All along the road south, United Nations rescue teams passing out bowls of warm rice, sprays of DDT, crutches for those who cannot walk, an empty flat car for a few lucky ones, frozen feet and dead children in the morning, and bridges choked with moving bundles of misery and despair, backed up for 10 and 15 miles behind an American MP who spent nine days at one bridge reports. What's your name? Sergeant Dias. From where? Jacksonville, Florida. How long have you been out here tonight? Not even about one o'clock this afternoon. Doing what? Directing traffic. Letting the Koreans that are going south get past across the road. Boy, I'm getting headaches. That's what I'm getting in gray hairs. <laughs> How are they to handle for traffic? They're rugged, rugged. <laughs> they can get they can get balled up so many different ways. It's pitiful. Just keep on walking, keep on walking. That's all they do. They get in your way and they just keep on walking. Why are they gonna sleep, you suppose? They won't sleep. If they do, they just stop along the road and sleep along the road. That's the only way they do it. Think there'll be any frozen or dead by morning? There usually is. Few we go frozen. around we go around picking them all the time. Yeah. Find a lot of them. There was time only to keep the refugees moving and moving. Often the long stream of Koreans, both the North and South Koreans, had to be shunted to the side to make room for the heavy tanks, half-tracks, and flak wagons to pass over the narrow artery of escape. At the other end of that bridge, MPs with bloodshot eyes who didn't have the time or the energy to feel sorry for themselves, feeling sorry for the children, leading the aged, the lonely, lost children looking vainly for their parents, the dead rotting on the roadside, the smell and the frozen dust of battle and retreat and disaster everywhere, and everyone heading south. They're going to Suwon? What's the matter with the child? Walking through every deserted war zone, 
There are always the curious, the sort of beachcombers of battle. Our microphone catches the act of one of them. It was set up for quite another purpose in a burned and abandoned warehouse. An elderly Korean came in. With his walking stick, he picked at metal shelves lined with abandoned beer cans, stuck together by frozen water. A few of the beer cans fell to the floor. The Korean reacted violently. His walking stick now swept shelf after shelf, tumbling can after can. Among the strangest of sounds in this strangest of wars. At the United Nations, the Korean Ceasefire Committee came up with a new plan to end the fighting and the misery. It calls for an immediate ceasefire, gradual withdrawal of all foreign troops, that means Chinese as well as United Nations, then a discussion of all Far Eastern problems, including the Chinese communist claim to Formosa and to the nationalist seat in the United Nations. The United States accepted the plan. Mr. Malik of Russia suggested he cannot support it. Sir Gladwin Jebb of Britain, as usual, asked that any action taken by the United Nations be a united action. Mr. President, the struggle to assert the authority of the United Nations will be a long business. We must have no illusions. We can have no illusions about that. And I am not saying that the present situation, the present situation in which the government of Peiping is openly flouting the authority of the United Nations... Uh, without this fact being openly recognized, I'm not saying that the present situation can or should go on for long. I am simply saying, which I think is common sense, that looking well before you leap is a very good maxim in foreign affairs. And it is, I think, very desirable that if we do leap, we all leap together. And in London, a new American ambassador to the court of St. James's is welcomed by the Pilgrim Society. former chairman of the board of American Telephone and Telegraph Company, was greeted by Lord Halifax, Britain's wartime ambassador to the United States. Although I am very well aware of the stern rule against any ambassador interfering in the domestic politics of the country to which he is accredited, I hope that if Mr. Gifford ever has, from the wealth of his experience, any suggestions to make to our postmaster general. In England, the post office runs the telephone system. That might assist the pilgrims to get the right number when they telephone to one another. He will not be precluded by any diplomatic etiquette from making them. If Britons were having traditional trouble with their telephone calls, Americans in New York, Minnesota, and Illinois were having to learn new telephone habits. This phone seems to be out of order. I don't get any dial tone. That's strange. Oh, did you deposit a dime? That's what that sign says. Oh, yes, it says deposit a dime or two nickels. Well, wait till I get this other nickel out of my pocket. 
In some cities, the nickel phone call was a nostalgic remnant of the past, and the coin wasn't far behind. And this week, at Washington's National Airport, the most popular man in America went back to the wars. Present! Hold! What up? Hold! Nine years ago, Dwight D. Eisenhower had gone to beleaguered Europe to win a war. This time, his role was a more difficult one, to help save the peace. President Truman went to the airport to wish the General Godspeed in his new mission as commander of the Atlantic Pact Armies. First, General Eisenhower, and then the president. Mr. President, I devoutly pray that the mission on which I'm leaving this morning will result in nothing but peace, security, and tranquility for our various nations of the Western Atlantic. I agree with you, General, and I know that's going to be the result. You have the wholehearted backing of the people of the United States, and I know that you'll have that same backing from the 11 other nations who are in the Atlantic Treaty. Goodbye and good luck. The peoples of Europe had heard the Eisenhower voice before. People of Western Europe, a landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. This landing is part of the concerted United Nations plan for the liberation of Europe, made in conjunction with our great Russian allies. That was in June of 1944. Five days ago in Paris, in just as many tongues, Ike had another message. Et voici le général Eisenhower. I return to Europe as a military commander, but with no miraculous plans, no display of military force. I return with an unshakable faith in Europe, this land of our ancestors, in the underlying courage of its people, in their willingness to live and sacrifice for a secure peace, and the continuance and the progress of civilization. We are committed to a great partnership, and I, in all humility, am proud to serve in one phase of attaining the aspirations of our several people. Should mankind, through our solidarity, our prayers for peace, and through the mercy of God, be spared the catastrophe of another war, then this organization will have served a noble purpose. The general would visit each member nation of the Atlantic Pact, would also visit Germany, which might supply part of his new army. The Germans still remembered Eisenhower as the commander who conquered them. In France, the assembly immediately voted to commit three divisions to his new command. Frenchmen remembered Eisenhower as the man who commanded the forces of liberation. Our Paris microphone caught a few phrases. I'm extremely pleased he's coming. I know what he can do, he's shown it before, and he can do it again. Uh, I think he's a fine general, but I wish he didn't have to come back to Paris. Well, I'm afraid that the presence of General Eisenhower here in France means war, whether it's in six months or six weeks, but it certainly means war to most of French people that I know of. When I first picked up the New York Herald Tribune and saw that the General Eisenhower's headquarters would be here, I thought, here it is again, war. Does it always have to be here? Can't they go fight some other place? And in Washington this week, the two biggest names in the news argued about Eisenhower's mission and our whole foreign policy. 
It was perhaps the opening heat of a debate which might rage for the next two years. The clash of these two men was inevitable. Members of the Congress, I have the distinguished honor of presenting to you the President of the United States. And now may I introduce a good friend, a splendid American statesman, a man to the manner born, Senator Robert A. Taft of Ohio. Although Dewey is still the titular head of the party, Senator Taft was unquestionably running the Republican show with as much command as Harry Truman ran the Democratic team. They might each make the race for the presidency in 1952. They both made important speeches this week. The president in his annual State of the Union address to the Congress. The threat of world conquest by Soviet Russia endangers our liberty and endangers the kind of world in which the free spirit of men can survive. Indeed, the state of our nation is, in great part, the state of our friends and allies throughout the world. The gun that points at them points at us also. That was President Truman on Monday. Now, Senator Taft the next day. I think the whole business of, of invading the war of Western Europe and making a military conquest of the world must look a good deal more difficult to the Russians than it does to some of those who are panic-stricken in this country. We have joined together some of Mr. Truman's utterances of the past week and those of Mr. Taft's where they speak on the same subject because we think they serve to illustrate rather clearly where it is that they differ and where so many of us are groping. It must be noted that President Truman was addressing the Congress and was very formal. Senator Taft was before the National Press Club luncheon and was perhaps more casual and conversational. Once again, President Truman, this time on the war in Korea. Korea has tremendous significance for the world. It means that free nations acting through the United Nations are fighting together against aggression. If the de democracies had stood up against the invasion of Manchuria in 1931 or the attack on Ethiopia in 1935, the whole history of our time would have been different. Senator Taft on the situation in Korea today. Yesterday, or on the press conference, I was asked directly the question, do you think we should withdraw from Korea? And I expressed much more mildly than appeared in the paper an opinion that I thought perhaps we should, particularly if it was going to involve us in serious losses to our army, to remain there. The two leaders differ mostly on the question of Europe. First, Truman. The defense of Europe is the basis for the defense of the whole free world, ourselves included, strategically, economically, and morally. The defense of Europe is a part of our own defense. Senator Taft on Europe. I myself am very dubious about the policy. Uh, I think it is particularly a mistake for us to assume the, the leadership in a tremendous international army to face the Russians on the Russian border. I think it is much more likely to bring war than it's ever to bring peace. Again, President Truman. The people of Europe have confidence in General Eisenhower. They know his ability to put together a fighting force of allies. His mission is vital to our security. Part of our job will be to reinforce the military strength of our European partners by sending them weapons and equipment as our military production expands. Senator Taft on Tuesday. 
If we put our, our commander-in-chief in control of a great international army, we will be called upon constantly to provide more and more. It will be an American army. It will be regarded by the Russians as an infinitely more aggressive force. And if we permit the British and French each to build up their own armies for the time being, until they get to a point where possibly a, a joint operation may be possible. Up until now, we have Senator Taft answering the president. Now, here is Senator Taft on strategy in Europe, and then Mr. Truman's answer. Either we have to assume that the, that the Russians are not going to engage in a military attack on Western Europe, or we, got, we have to assume that they are. If they're not going to engage in a military attack in Europe, then this is unnecessary. If they have made up their minds to attack Western Europe, why should they wait for three years to, for us to build up a great international army? What possible reason is there for their waiting? If Western Europe were to fall to Soviet Russia, it would double the Soviet supply of coal and triple the Soviet supply of steel. And Soviet command of the manpower of the free nations of Europe and Asia would confront us with the military forces which we could never hope to equal. The unofficial Truman-Taft debate continued through the week. The senator offered to sit down and try to work things out with the president. The president made it clear that the senator must ask for an appointment. The senator charged the president had usurped his authority in sending troops to Korea. Now was about to do it again by sending troops to Europe. The president said he would consult Congress on this, but he didn't need congressional approval. To which the senator from Ohio replied, that means the end of the bipartisan foreign policy. Throughout the general debate, in the Senate, in the House, at press conferences and clubs, over the radio and through the newspaper interview, at least one thing was clear. The president's views more nearly represented the feelings of the Congress than did those of Senator Taft, many of whose Senate colleagues disagreed with his approach. Senators, representatives, cab drivers, and columnists, everybody had an opinion. The business of choosing up sides was in full swing. Senator Humphrey of Minnesota, a fair dealer, stood by his chief. President Truman presented to the Congress, the American people, yes, the whole world, a clear-cut statement of American foreign policy. He left no doubt, either for the free world or the Soviet and its stooges, that America will mobilize and will rearm. The president re-emphasized our partnership with the nations of the North Atlantic Pact. By positive and convincing argument, he stated the administration's policy for defending and strengthening Western Europe. Indirectly and convincingly, he replied to Senator Taft and former President Hoover by citing that Europe as our ally was a powerful force for peace and victory. But Western Europe in the hands of the Soviet would be a major defeat for the cause of freedom and democracy. I am convinced that the president has given the American people a foreign policy that will stand the American people well in the days to come. I am convinced that the president is deserving of the support of every patriotic American in this great effort to stop the onrush of totalitarian communism as it attempts to destroy the free way of life. Senator Cape Hart of Indiana stood where he always has. I have no quarrel with the president's objectives in resisting communism, but based on his administration's past performance and methods used, I feel the people in the Congress should have more say on how he proposes to stop the spread of communism. So far, his policies and methods have failed, and they will continue to fail 
unless he gives more thought to protecting American boys and uses our strength, namely the Air Corps and the Navy, and less ground troops, and insists that our allies use more ground troops as they have an abundance of them, and also uses the National Chinese Army and rearms Japan, and I must say insist again on Western European nations furnishing no less than 200 divisions, which they can easily do. Warren Austin, a Republican colleague of Senator Taft and a representative of the President at the United Nations, spoke with more confidence than either of them in stating that debate was not the only weapon at the disposal of the United Nations. In relative preparedness, we are far down the list of nations, save in atomic weapons, air power, and naval power. These last three items are not to be shrugged off as inconsequential. In all three, we are growing in strength by leaps and bounds. This is power of retaliation which is our bulwark for peace and gives the aggressor pause. It is not for the moment what is in front of him, but what can come over him that immobilizes his overwhelming strength on the ground. This is a shield behind which power can be built and the free world united in practical collective measures. And a voice not heard very much these days in Washington spoke out in favor of free enterprise and against wage controls. John Llewellyn Lewis. Many people look, think of inflation as the type of inflation that afflicted Germany in the days we can remember. Or the type of inflation that through the centuries has afflicted China when currency was carried around in baskets. That condition comes from a weakness of government, and our government is not weak. If the country needs another 100 million tons of coal, more than we produced in 1950, it's available for them. If it needs 200 million tons of coal, more than we produced in 1950, it's available, hauled away. The mining industry will produce it. Without a cent of government money at the cost of taxpayers and without the issuance of a single fiat or paper regulation, that's free enterprise. That's American aptitude. That's what free men will do. But Mr. Lewis wasn't the only American talking about free enterprise. In Cleveland, a success story more than a quarter of a century old ended, and it was a big story in Ohio. Louis Smith operated a very busy parking lot in Cleveland since 1924. This week, city officials discovered that Smith's lot was on county property. The matter of back rent and taxes for doing business on the corner of James Street, just under the approach to the high-level bridge, presented certain difficulties for businessman Louis Smith this week. County commissioner come down here one day. I didn't know who he was. He was a big heavyset fellow. And uh, he was asking me what was I doing. I told him I was cleaning up cars and watching these cars down here. I didn't know he was county commissioner. But uh, after a little while standing around talking, he run his hand in his pocket and pulled his badge out and told me, he said, I am the county commissioner. Then I began to talk to the man and asked him, could I stay here? 
and shine and watch and polish these cars and go around through the flats here. He said, if I could make myself any money and do any good, watching these pills, keep them being chipped off, don't let nobody run into them, and don't let the kids be climbing around up over this bridge, I may stay here. And so I stayed here up until now since I had any trouble. I've been here for 26 years with my own place of business, built up my business, made a good parking lot here. But now I don't, I don't know, look like there's somebody here don't understand the free enterprise. This was the week in which Americans heard the news about the new draft. On Wednesday, General Marshall went before a Senate committee and asked for all physically fit 18-year-olds to serve in the armed forces for 27 months. Personally, I have gone through some very destructive periods in the history of our unpreparedness. We must not continue to make short-term plans for immediate emergencies to be followed by abrupt demobilization and the withdrawal of authority to train the men necessary to a reasonable posture of defense. The general brought with him one of his most important assistants, the first woman assistant secretary of defense, Mrs. Anna Rosenberg, one of the nation's top experts on manpower. Her report to the committee was refreshingly frank. I have asked the almost impossible from the services and from the civilian members of the Department of Defense, both in work and in uh, uh, asking that the impossible may be made possible. They have not only done this, but with utmost patience contributed to my military education, which was very badly lacking, to the extent, gentlemen, where I used to use uh, Air Corps instead of Air Force. I now find myself at least being more familiar with the terminology. And I'd also like to say to you that my task so far has been performed by the bringing in of the large staff of exactly two people and one consultant, I don't want you gentlemen, by anything I said, as I know you wouldn't, whether I said it or not, get the idea that there's all sweetness and light in the Department of Defense or any other place when it comes to the full utilization of manpower, either military or civilian. All of us are trying hard, but as General Marshall has said, we have just begun the job. The time for extended studies, the appointment of committees and boards is over. There are enough studies in Washington on any one subject to supply information for the next 10 years. The time for action is here now. You are listening to Hear It Now, CBS's weekly review of the news told in the actual recorded voices of the men and women who made the news. The program continues immediately after this pause for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is week number two, 1951, on Hear It Now, a 60-minute document for ear, based on the week's news, edited by Edward R. Murrow and Fred W. Friendly. Now, here again is Mr. Murrow. 
In the U.S. Senate, it is not permitted to call a colleague a liar. In England, where the House of Commons is a great arena for debate, there is a time-honored guidebook which contains a long list of insults which one member cannot send into action against another. The new list of banned phrases was recently published, and this is the official report as broadcast from London. Since 1844, new abusive epithets have continually come into use so that each succeeding edition has listed new examples of expressions considered unparliamentary. For instance, in 1930, the following phrases were included. Cad, or caddishness. Pecksniffian cant. Describing a member's speech as blever. In 1931, lie down, dog. In 1932, behaving like a jackass. In 1934, swine. In 1935, cheat. Since the war, only three have been added. In 1945, not a damned one of you opposite. In 1946, stool pigeon. And, for good measure, in the 1950 edition, I'm afraid it's been found necessary to remind members that it is not parliamentary to call a fellow member a bastard. And uh, how did the London man on the street feel about restricting the descriptive metaphor in the mother of parliaments? Well, if I were asked what I thought were the most conspicuous contribution of the British Parliament, I should say it's just in this one thing of avoiding fighting words and giving tolerance to both parties. I think that the fact you've got to avoid these fighting words has allowed us to be most ingenious in learning new words that seem polite, but on the other hand can be frightfully rude without hurting. Nobody but Winston Churchill could have called an honourable member's lie an honourable member's terminological inexactitude. Well... I think it's a jolly good thing they, they do keep the members in order that way. Well, I think it's good for them to be pulled up like that in the House of Commons. I disagree with the parliamentary language. It's stunted and stilted, and I think they should speak so that the man in the street who elected them can understand exactly what they're talking about. And uh, if they get a bit of <coughs> abusive now and again and call one another uh, names out of school, well, I say uh, it's all for the good. In fact, I can think of a few things I'd like to call some of them myself. Oh, you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> London's bookmakers quoted odds of a thousand to one that there won't be war this year. And one bookie said, when we give odds like that, you can be sure it won't happen. A Gallup poll showed that the thing that annoys Americans most is other people. Next came the government in Washington. Third on the list of annoyances was war. An Iowa psychologist proposed a new way of cutting down on highway accidents at night, make the back ends of all automobiles glow. A New Mexico cowboy who never finished the first grade passed the Marine Corps mental test with grades above average for college graduates. Elizabeth Taylor announced, for anyone who's interested, that she now has incipient ulcers. General Marshall told a group of businessmen, the most dangerous spot in the world to U.S. security is the cocktail lounge of Washington's Mayflower Hotel. Sinclair Lewis, first American novelist to win a Nobel Prize, died in Rome. Emil Fry, discoverer of Liederkranz cheese, died in Ohio. Charles Goddard, author of the famous Perils of Pauline, died in Florida. And in Chicago, they were writing the obituaries for Bushman, the most famous zoo animal in America, who died last week. Chicago columnist Irving Kupsinet wrote this. Bushman really died of a broken heart. A broken heart because he was the only gorilla not subpoenaed by Senator Kefauver. Welterweight champion Sugar Ray Robinson got the Neal Memorial plaque as the man who did most for boxing last year. 
In Knoxville, Tennessee, a man told probation officers he couldn't report as scheduled because his children had cut dolls out of his probation papers. And some enterprising statistician figured out that last year Americans fed more than a billion dollars in small change into the country's coin machines. And an American mother paid tribute to one of her sons with an overtone of understatement which could come only from a mother with five sons, one of whom likes to whistle. Harry had been whistling and singing ever since he was a little boy. I thought he was pretty good then, too. He has gone far since that time because he likes to sing, and I guess folks like to hear him. The world needs songs, and I'm very happy that my son can be one of those who supplies them. It was the 20th anniversary of the radio career of Orange Juice King baseball magnate, captain of industry, Harry Lillis Crosby. When stars appear and shadows fall, well, then you'll hear my poor heart call to you, my love, my life, my all. I another story in Los Angeles this week beside the Crosby anniversary celebration. It happened on Sunday afternoon. This, this particular concussion, uh, I definitely feel sure it came from the air. It was a concussion of the air, not a concussion of the earth. Usually they happen simultaneously in an explosion, but this, there was a distinct uh, peculiarity about this in that it came from the air only. That's what makes me f- feel puzzled about the matter. I thought it was an earthquake. It hit the left side of the house. I was standing out in front of our large plate glass window, Public Loan Corporation, Curver City, uh, just standing there, and all of a sudden I heard this explosion. The window began shaking, and I thought, sure, it was going to fall out of its frame. I stepped back to the curb and looked back in at our customers, all frightened, and wondered at the time what it could be. Well, I was inside, of course, partly enclosed, and it just seemed to me like a real heavy thump. Some asked us where the Russians had hit us, or whether it was an atomic bomb, or... Uh, whether we had had an earthquake. In less than 10 minutes, the Los Angeles and Santa Monica police switchboards lit up with more than 2,500 calls as a frightened public called to find out whether it was an enemy attack or an explosion. A high-speed jet fighter, an F-86 with swept-back wings, a saber, had pulled out of a dive, traveling faster than the speed of sound, probably 800 miles an hour over the city. The plane pulled out of its dive and set a new course, But the sound it had been creating at high altitude, unable to travel as fast as the plane, finally reached the city. And unlike the plane, the sound was unable to pull out of the dive. Instead, it came crashing through the clouds, forming a tremendous vacuum, which created a concussion and wind blast, which sounded exactly like this. The sound you're about to hear was recorded for Hear It Now yesterday at the Muroc Air Base in California. Usually, around this point on Hear It Now, we do a piece about the nation's press and occasionally one on sports and one on drama. This week, all of these departments center about what Red Barber would call the same rhubarb. Notre Dame, a sports writer named Red Smith, and a drama critic named Emmett Dedman. As almost everyone knows, Notre Dame had a tough time winning ballgames this year. 
And last week, the sports writers of the nation voted the South Bend team the flop of the year. Now, Emmett Dedman is the drama critic of the Chicago Sun-Times. And this week, he rose out of his seat on the aisle to say that the flop of the year was not the fighting Irish, but the sports writers. I noticed that the sports writers got so far offside that I decided to get off my regular beat and have something to say about what went on on the gridiron. Now, the, my purpose in doing this was simple. What I wanted to do was give the country sports writers a collective kick in the pants for voting Notre Dame's gritters the 1950 flop of the year in sports. Last fall, these same experts voted Notre Dame the probable 1950 champion. To me, and everyone but the sports writers, this made the experts the top flop of 1950 because they were so wrong in their predictions. I think they were angry because the cat was out of the bag that most of the so-called pre-game forecasters can't pick a winner any better than Mr. Average Guy who is trying to make a buck in the weekly football pool. 900 miles away from Chicago... Red Smith, who was really more of a sports essayist than writer, read of Mr. Dedman's charges. And the pride of the New York Herald Tribune and the graduate of Notre Dame answered the drama critic. Ordinarily, one would mark Mr. Dedman a poacher and suggest that he stay off our shooting preserve. Here in the fun and games department, we can be wrong without any help from the Jukes family. However, as long as the sports field employs such relentlessly theatrical performers as baseball's celebrated singer, Commissioner Happy Chandler, we can't complain about the Shakespeare mob muscling in on us. Anyhow, these are bad times for critics in Chicago as well as Washington, and we should all be indulgent. Mr. Dedman is no slouch at tossing the 16-pound invective, but his aim is bad. In football, Notre Dame occupies the same position that Miss Helen Hayes or the Luntz hold in Mr. Dedman's dodge. The critic always expects them to score, and if they were to lay an egg, Mr. Dedman would charge the error to the performer, not to the gentleman dozing in the aisle seats. Unlike the sports writer, who is expected to be infallible before the curtain goes up, the play reviewer lives by the second guess exclusively. He should be thankful for that and not start second-guessing the second-guessers. Back in Washington this week, the senior senator from Ohio, along with the former senator from Missouri, were the big news story. But an old friend of Senator Taft's father, President William Howard Taft, was good for a story all his own. Samuel Jackson, for 41 years a messenger at the White House, ushered in his last visitor, said goodbye to President Truman, and retired. We asked Mr. Jackson to tell us what he remembered of Senator Taft's father. I remember the first day that I went to the White House. It was a snowy, cold, bleak day, and the snow and slush was just raging and people that come into town was tremendous crowd here for the inauguration. Oh, yes, sir. President Taft was one of the people who was uh, liked a lot of people around. And he had a lot of people 
entertained them a lot. He had more receptions and uh, had more friends here than uh, the general run of presidents. Messenger Jackson was not the only Washingtonian with words for the nation this week. Republican Senator Wiley of Wisconsin called for new tactics in fighting communism. He asked for an American fifth column behind the Iron Curtain. America must give Russia and her satellites a taste of their own vile medicine. All this in the interest of peace. For years, the Kremlin has been attempting to foment revolutions within free Western nations. They've shipped arms, money, lies, hate, and sabotage material and so forth to their stool pigeons in the free lands. The time is overdue for us to stop following a mere panty-waist diplomacy, a mere wordy voice of America program. We must start using a commando-type program of psychological and revolutionary penetration, including the use of silver bullets, I mean money. And Republican Representative Canfield of New Jersey said that the government had a shortage of skilled manpower way up high. He asked for the drafting of two of America's most famous elder statesmen. President Truman and former President Hoover want America to be saved, and they may not be so far apart as some believe. I think it would not only be the magnanimous thing to do, I think it would be most patriotic and helpful. If Mr. Truman were to give Mr. Hoover a place in the consuls of the nation during this crisis. I think, too, we need to draft men like Bernard Baruch, who has been proven to be so right in the past. Late today, an active statesman who occupies a key position in this world conflict made a speech. Prime Minister Nehru of India. He has been attending the British Commonwealth Prime Minister's Conference in London, where the nine ministers today called for a meeting between the Western leaders and Stalin and Mao Zedong to see clearly into each other's hearts and minds. Here, from London, is Prime Minister Nehru. The immediate problem of today is the problem of the Far East. If that is not solved satisfactorily, trouble spreads to Europe and to the rest of the world. And perhaps Europe, with her magnificent record of progress, not only in material achievements, but also in the culture of the mind and spirit will suffer most if war comes. Therefore, we must come to grips with this Far Eastern problem with the firm determination to solve it. We can only do so with the temper and approach of peace and friendliness and not by threats. From day to day, an atmosphere is created in people's minds of the inevitability of war. Helplessly, we seem to be driven towards the abyss. We are in the midst of an international crisis, and perhaps an even greater crisis that confronts us today is the crisis in the spirit of man. The next report on this program originated in Salt Lake City, Clinton, Oklahoma, Boston, Massachusetts, Stockton, California, and in the old State Department building in Washington, D.C. The President of the United States of America, authorized by Act of Congress, approved March the 3rd, 1863, has awarded in the name of the Congress the Medal of Honor to... The Congressional Medal of Honor. There is no higher honor this nation can bestow upon its sons. This week, five were awarded. 
to one general and four foot soldiers. Major General Dean, PFC Melvin Brown of Mahaffey, Pennsylvania, Lieutenant Fred Henry, Sergeant Charles Turner of Boston, Master Sergeant Travis Watkins of Gladewater, Texas. We have chosen to tell the story of one of these men in the voices of those who knew him. This, then, is the story of Lieutenant Frederick F. Henry of Clinton, Oklahoma, and Am Dong, Korea. You are in the old State Department building where the President of the United States is conferring medals after citations are read. Lieutenant Henry, come to F-38th Infantry Regiment, distinguished himself by conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity above and beyond the call of duty in action on 1 September 1950 in the vicinity of Amdong, Korea. It takes more than a commendation to win the Medal of Honor. Survivors are questioned, all facts checked, above and beyond the call of duty. Lieutenant Henry was awarded the 2,118th Medal of Honor in all our history. One of those who watched the lieutenant that night near Amdong was Corporal Richard Simon, a bazooka man from Philadelphia. Just about 11.20 that night, there was a lot of screaming, a lot of yelling. Throw up green flares and they blew a whistle and they toot a horn. And somebody yelled, attack. I saw Lieutenant Henry in back of me. He was going to the right flank and to the left flank, checking positions. And then uh, everything cut loose. And men had to start dropping back from the positions. And as I was falling back, I believe Lieutenant Henry, which I'm sure was the last man, he was coming up to me, he was holding on to his shoulder, he had been wounded. I don't know what had hit him, I mean, there was so much going on, but Lieutenant Henry was hit again and he went down. And he laid on the ground there and told us to get back to our positions. We were told that we couldn't, that over half the platoon was already wiped out. He says, if you can't get back to positions, he says, retreat. Lieutenant Henry had a good job, he was a good officer. That good officer, Lieutenant Fred Henry, one of the eight sons of J.P. and Ida Henry, grew up on a large tenant farm some 90 miles from Oklahoma City. His parents remember a boy with long, strong arms and tanned skin. Like all other boys, he'd get out and have his good times and things like that, but as far as being worried about getting into trouble, why, he never was. Well, he was a terrible boy to argue when I... Didn't want him to do anything. He would just argue till the very last. We seldomly had to scold and spank him for anything, but he sure did argue, and and up and he does yet. Fred wasn't what you'd call disobedient. He wanted to know if he had a difference with you, who was right and who was wrong. That's what I liked about it. The farm on which Fred lived and worked was owned by the Howell family. Mrs. Howell had a high opinion of the boy. Everyone in our neighborhood considered Fred one of the nicest boys that there was anywhere because he was always very polite, very considerate. Fred wasn't much to play around. He was more of a man. When I mean he seemed to be a, a boy with a man's understanding and tried to assume responsibilities that would help his mother and dad in any way that he could. When Fred Henry was 17... His father took him to the recruiting center where he could join up. In 1944, he was in the Philippines, won a battlefield commission. In 1946, he came home. His father, who had seen him leave for war, met him when he came back. Uh, When he got off of the the taxi, I didn't even know him. Uh, He, and that's what I'm trying to say is, when he went, he was just a kid. And when he come back, he was a man. I didn't know him. 
Fred Henry decided to stay in the army, was shipped to Augsburg, Germany, near Munich, met a young army nurse named Bonnie Southam, and married her. She remembers a white orchid from Paris. I had told my husband I wanted white orchids. Of course, orchids are just impossible to get in Germany, and he thought I was serious. I wasn't. I was teasing him. It was pretty usual. But he went out and commandeered a plane and flew to France, and I had white orchids in my wedding bouquet. We asked Lieutenant Henry's mother-in-law about him. She remembers him the day his son, Zeke, was born. Right after the boy was born, my son-in-law called me long distance from Frankfurt, Germany. And it was such a shock, and I trembled so I could hardly answer the phone, that the first words that came over the wire were, Hello, Mom, we got our boy. The Henrys watched the Berlin airlift, saw an occasional refugee escape from Czechoslovakia returned to the United States to begin a tour of duty at Fort Lewis, Washington, where their second child was born. They called her Sharon. They read about Mount Setung in Formosa and the 38th parallel. A few short months later, Lieutenant Henry was on his way to Korea, leaving behind his wife, Zeke, and Sharon. She is definitely her daddy's pride and joy. He just, I think, felt worse about leaving her than anything because she was at such a cute age when he left. The night before Hank knew that he was to leave, he told him uh, that he was going to have to be gone an extra long time this time and that he was to be a good boy. And his father wanted things kept as normal as possible. As far as our son knows, his daddy's just working an extra long time. Well, one of the things he said was that last time he was fighting for his country, this time he was fighting for me and the children. And that last time, there were times when he doubted he would come home, but this time he, he knew he would come home. That just nothing could happen to him now that he had everything he'd hoped to have for years. He'd be back for me to stay there and wait for him. On his own initiative, although severely wounded, he decided to hold his possession as long as possible and ordered the wounded evacuated and their weapons and ammunition brought to him. Establishing a one-man defensive position, he ordered the platoon's withdrawal and despite his wound and with complete disregard for himself, remained behind to cover the movement. The next day, infantryman Lieutenant Frederick Henry was listed among the missing. The usual telegrams were sent over the adjutant general's signature. After I recovered from the first shock of the telegram, I was talking to a friend of mine on the telephone, Olympia, and she said, Oh, Bonnie, don't worry about Hank. He can take care of himself. I remember saying to her, Oh, I know him. He's probably a little bit fed up with the way they're doing things, and he's gone off and is fighting his own private little war. I didn't know how right I was. The officers with notebooks and pencils had finished interrogating the survivors. Some things soldiers quickly forget. They don't ever forget the Fred Henrys. Corporal Richard Simon remembers. They asked me if I would sign a statement saying that what he had done was true. I said, yes, I would. I was given the paper and I read it over. It surely did write him up good. He deserved every bit of it. There should have been a lot more, but you can't say it on paper. It had all happened only a few months ago, on September 1st, near Amdong, Korea. Now it was all on paper, checked, rechecked, Phrased, rephrased, notarized, and stamped with the great seal of the nation. On Tuesday of this week, the President of the United States read what the corporal and the others had seen and written. Prince Henry, that's a wonderful citation. We all appreciate the sacrifices which you're making and which he made. 
We recalled how the lady with the new medal had talked three days ago. I still have confidence that he may be back. The chaplain's letter said that it was within the range of possibility for him to be alive. Sort of clinging to that hope. When last seen, he was single-handedly firing all available weapons so effectively that he caused an estimated 50 enemy casualties. Lieutenant Henry's outstanding gallantry and noble self-sacrifice above and beyond the call of duty reflects the highest honor in him and was in keeping with the esteemed traditions of the Army of the United States. It surely did write him up good. He deserved every bit of it. There should have been a lot more, but you can't say it on paper. have been listening to Hear It Now, second week, 1951, CBS's weekly document for ear based on the week's news. All the sounds and voices were real. They were recorded on the scene of history in the making. Hear It Now is edited and produced by Edward R. Murrow and Fred W. Friendly, and a CBS staff which includes Irving Gitlin, Edmund Scott, and Jack Beck. Ed Gill is the engineer. Portions of this broadcast originated at WTOP in Washington, WBBM Chicago, WEEI Boston, KOMA Oklahoma City, KSL Salt Lake City, WGAR Cleveland, KNX Los Angeles, KCBS San Francisco, and KROY Sacramento. The Korean battle reports were recorded in Korea by CBS correspondent George Herman. Other portions originated at the British Broadcasting Corporation and United Nations Radio. Edward R. Morrow may be heard each weekday evening at 7.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time over most of these same CBS stations. This is Olin Tai speaking. probably heard the moving slogan, no man ever stands so straight as when he stoops to help a child. It's a great feeling when a mature, intelligent male adult volunteers to guide a little brother to a happy, productive manhood. That's what the men in the Big Brother movement have done for the past five years. More volunteer Big Brothers are needed now. Contact your local organization for work during the coming year. This is CBS, the Star's Address. The Columbia Broadcasting System.